Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi there, and welcome back to American Biography, The Life of John Marshall, Episode 4, In the Army Now. I wanted to pick up on the same thread we left off on last time, and talk a little bit more about the Patriot military forces. The image of ragtag militia driving redcoats into the sea has become a dearly held notion, buried deep near the heart of the American mythos. However, for reasons touched upon in the last episode, this was far from the reality of the situation. Nobody's saying that militia service wasn't valuable, or that the Minutemen were inherently more cowardly than regular soldiers. It's just that they were far less reliable. You couldn't be sure what you were going to get from one engagement to the next, particularly as the action got farther away from the militiaman's home. And the instability of this system was why Washington constantly pushed Congress to bolster the Continental Army. The newly formed Virginia regiments John Marshall was joining at the end of the last episode were raised in response to the calls of the Continental Congress, and he and others were signing up to be in the Continental Army, not the Virginia militia. Instead of serving an enlistment term of months or weeks, he and the others were committing to years. They weren't just joining to defend theirs or their neighbors' fields, and they knew that they wouldn't be returning home in time to help with the harvest. No, these men were going to be sent anywhere in the continent their superiors deemed necessary, and those superiors weren't just going to be friends that they'd grown up with or whom they'd elected, but were going to be strangers put in place by the appointments of higher-ranking and more distant strangers and disobedience to these officers would now result in flogging, and if one were to change their mind and try to head home early, that would now mostly end in hanging. This was the stark reality of life in a professional army, which First Lieutenant John Marshall and the Virginia 11th had signed up for. As we mentioned last time, the 11th would be commanded by Colonel Daniel Morgan. Morgan had just been released from captivity by the British, having been captured during the failed invasion of Canada in 1775. 
He was a backwoods legend, whom the Falkwar men likely knew by reputation, as the commander of a renowned, or depending on who you asked, infamous, light infantry corps called Morgan's Rifles. Morgan himself had a reputation for personal toughness. For instance, he was missing the teeth on one side of his mouth as the result of a musket ball which had passed through. And another story, dating back to the French and Indian War, went that as a civilian teamster, Morgan had gotten into an argument with a British officer and punched him. For this offense, Morgan received 500 lashes and lived. Needless to say, life as a Continental regular was not easy. Writing for the Colonial Williamsburg Journal, Christopher Geist describes it in a nutshell. The pay was poor and often delayed or deferred. Discipline was harsh. Food, meager and sometimes rotten. And clothing and shelter, often insufficient. If anything, this is a bit of an understatement. Supply shortages plagued the Continental Army throughout the war and the lack of clothing, food, arms, and ammunition was chronic. The reasons for this were many. Lack of a stable currency, the Congress's poor to non-existent credit, and the absence of infrastructure for the transportation of goods, all were significant factors. Military contractors were paid in advance to procure and deliver supplies to the Army, and they were often, let's say, entrepreneurial, sometimes taking the money only to deliver spoiled food, unusable arms, were simply failing to deliver the promised supplies altogether. Cumulatively, Congress lacked the logistical skill and experience, and often the political cohesion to correct the problem of supplying the army. Washington was often forced to resort to circular letters to the states, simply begging for supplies. Sometimes the states wouldn't or couldn't respond, and even when they did, the wheels often turned slowly. However, full belly or not, with or without shoes, a Continental regular could expect to have to cope with a great deal of marching. For example, in July of 1777, Marshall was amongst that part of the 11th that Washington dispatched to the Hudson Valley to prevent General William Howe, who had assumed overall command of British operations in North America in 1775 from sending forces from his base in New York City to link up with the ill-fated gentleman Johnny Burgoyne, who was rumored to be making his way southward from Canada through upstate New York. Marshall and company would march over 300 miles in 18 days, traversing mountainous terrain and fording rivers, all for nothing. Burgoyne moved slowly and became bogged down en route from Quebec, and Howe simply never made a move towards upstate New York. He had other goals in mind that summer. In all of his subsequent writing about the war, Marshall rarely grumbled about the hardships of soldiering, and chose instead to focus on its more heroic dimensions. The winter of Valley Forge would prove a lone exception, and, well, to be honest, that was Valley Forge. Those who served with and under John Marshall always noted his remarkable buoyancy in the face of the drudgery of the soldier's life and how he seemed to go out of his way to cheer others when they seemed despairing. This was likely, at least in part, true to leadership as much as anything else, but I think there are two things that are certain. One, this effusive optimism had to be largely genuine, or it simply couldn't have been sustained as long as it was. And two, his efforts were effective. As one contemporary wrote, 
He was an excellent companion and idolized by soldiers and his brother officers, whose gloomy hours were enlivened by his inexhaustible fund of anecdote. Marshall's trek through New York and New Jersey ended with the crossing of the Delaware River into Pennsylvania at the end of July of 1777. By this time, General Howe had made it clear that he was moving toward the rebel capital of Philadelphia. Howe had sailed out of New York Harbor, and after being pushed much farther south by the weather than he anticipated, finally entered the Chesapeake Bay, disembarking with 17,000 men and 5,000 horses in Maryland in late August. Washington immediately moved his troops south to defend the capital, and instead of circumventing the city, chose to march through it in hopes of bolstering patriot sentiment and keeping the Tory population cowed. On paper, colonial forces also numbered 17,000 men, but Marshall points out the badness of their clothing and scarcity of tents, and in some degree to the neglect of the commissary department to provide those articles of food which contribute to the preservation of health, that the effective force was always far below the total number. The effectives, including militia, did not exceed 11,000. In terms of training, discipline, and equipment, the Patriot forces were no match for the British, and before the Battle of Brandywine was through, how thoroughly proved the same was true in terms of tactical generalship. In the ensuing battle, Washington was drubbed nearly as badly as he was at New York the previous year. Morgan, possibly Washington's most valuable field commander, and part of the 11th had been dispatched to upstate New York to reinforce Horatio Gates earlier that summer, and in his absence, Washington was forced to create a new light infantry corps to harass Howe's advance on the capital. John Marshall was one of the lieutenants chosen to be part of this 600-man force. Placed under the command of a New Jersey officer named William Maxwell, they headed out immediately to confront the British vanguard. On September 3rd, the Light Infantry Corps under Maxwell lay in wait for the approaching British, south of a small stone crossing called Cooch's Bridge that spanned a minor tributary of the Brandywine River. As enemy battalions came into view, Maxwell's men opened fire, beginning an intense skirmish. Maxwell's Light Infantry fell back to a stone wall where the fighting continued. Low on ammunition, the men fell back to Cooch's Bridge, where Marshall and the others made a second stand. However, at this point, they were nearly, if not totally, out of ammunition, and with British reinforcements and artillery approaching, Maxwell's men fell back again, this time to the main army. It took several more days for Howe to maneuver his forces into position. That the battle at the Brandywine was likely to be the most serious engagement of the war to date was likely understood by the participants, and Marshall's later description nicely relays this sense of urgency. The armies were now within seven miles of each other, with only the Brandywine between them, which opposed no obstacle to a general engagement. This was sought by Howe, and not avoided by Washington. It was impossible to protect Philadelphia without a victory, and this object was deemed throughout America, and especially by Congress, of such magnitude as to require that an action should be hazarded for its attainment. On the morning of September 11th, battle was joined, and John Marshall, still with Maxwell's infantry, had again been sent out as an advance force to impede the adverse army. They engaged at 9 a.m. By 10.30 a.m., they had been forced back to the American side of the river again. 
British troop movements indicated they were going to attempt a forced crossing at Chad's Ford, one of the few places Howe's forces could hope to cross the Brandywine, and it was here Washington had concentrated his forces. Those British movements were a ruse, however, and in reality, Howe had broke off an 8,000-man force that was marching 15 miles upriver to an alternate crossing. Once this force crossed the river, they tore into the unprepared continental right flank, and the line began to crumble. With the right flank gone, Marshall wrote, it was impossible to retrieve the fortune of the day. The Patriot defense of the capital was all but over. Gene Edward Smith doesn't hesitate to place blame where it belongs, writing, Washington was badly outgeneraled at Brandywine. The two armies were more or less equal size, and Washington held the defensive advantage behind the river, but he was completely unprepared for Howe's envelopment and reacted slowly. Smith also quotes another historian, Douglas Freeman, who describes Washington's behavior as if in a daze. With the light infantry, John Marshall fought in the earliest action that morning, and acting as part of the rear guard for the retreating army, saw some of the last fighting that evening. Beveridge writes that John had shown the characteristic martial coolness and courage in battle. This was a rather nice compliment for the young man, but while John had undoubtedly fought hard at Brandywine, it was Thomas Marshall who had covered himself in martial glory. In command of the Virginia 3rd, Thomas Marshall had two horses shot out from under him while holding the British back long enough to allow the American forces time to withdraw. For his courageous actions, the Virginia Convention would vote him a commemorative sword. Following the battle, Washington and his forces regrouped and still stood between Howe and Philadelphia. Though they'd been beaten, the Continental Army had not been annihilated, so Howe advanced cautiously. Small skirmishes flared here and there, but Washington, rebuffing the wishes of Congress, refused to hazard another general engagement at this time. In war, taking the enemy's capital is often a coup de grace. A capital is an important symbol, an administrative center, the loss of which was generally too great for a belligerent to bear. But that was not the case with the taking of Philadelphia. The British general took the city on September 26th, However, the Continental Congress had abandoned the capital on September 18th. Not only did Howe's seizure of the city fail to make a political impact, but it also failed to make a material impact, since Washington had had the time to dispatch Colonel Alexander Hamilton to make sure the large stock of munitions that was stored in the city was moved before falling into enemy hands. Howe split his force and established an encampment in Germantown, Pennsylvania, about five miles north of Philadelphia, placing 9,000 men there while keeping 3,000 troops behind to occupy the city. Washington's forces remained close by and worked to make the British occupation of Philadelphia difficult and uncomfortable. Buoyed by reinforcements, Washington determined to engage Howe at his next opportunity. He was encouraged by the division of Howe's forces and sought to press his numerical advantage by attacking the main British force at Germantown. The battle plans were typically Washingtonian, by which I mean unnecessarily complicated and well beyond the skill of his troops and officers to possibly execute. These included four separate columns undertaking a 16-mile night march meant to strike the British encampment from different directions simultaneously at dawn. No big deal, right? Despite confusion caused by the marching orders and in spite of a heavy fog, 
The Americans managed to catch the British by surprise on the morning of October 4th and enjoyed initial success at Germantown. But between the morning mist and clouds of smoke from musket fire, 120 British soldiers had escaped the American advance and holed up in a stone mansion called Clivenden, or the Chew House, which the American vanguard unknowingly charged right by. The British, ensconced as they were inside the Chew House, began laying down what Marshall described as an incessant and galling fire of musketry from its doors and windows upon the passing Patriot forces. It's doubtful that Washington had read Sun Tzu, and it would be 30 years until von Clausewitz would write down again that old military maxim about being wary of letting your enemy hold fortified positions in your army's rear. But nevertheless, Washington was determined to take that mansion. Marshall's detachment was part of the force tasked to take the Chew House. Several unsuccessful and bloody attempts to storm the house were made, one personally led by Marshall, who received a minor hand wound. In his determination to have Chew House, Washington contradicted the advice of his entire war council. Marshall, who almost never had a bad thing to say about Washington, reports that the time spent trying to take Chew House slowed the whole advance and subsequently caused the American lines to break. The resulting disorder ultimately precipitated the American withdrawal, with the British still in possession of Germantown. Despite the defeat, the Americans' performance was considered solid, and Washington's battle plan even garnered some accolades from his British counterparts. The audacity displayed at Germantown, and an unrelated victory by American forces at Saratoga and upstate New York, breathed new life into the American cause. On this mildly upbeat note, Washington marched his forces into winter quarters at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, where Marshall and the rest of the men probably looked forward to resting, maybe fattening up and sitting by a cozy fire, ahead of the 1778 campaigning season. What could possibly go wrong with that plan? All right, that'll be all for today. As always, thank you for listening. If you're the sort who likes maps, I'm going to have maps from the Battle of Brandywine and Germantown up on the Facebook page and website, so please feel free to check those out. And if you have any feedback, please send it my way at AmericanBiographyPodcast at gmail.com. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please consider supporting it. You can click the donate button on the website, AmericanBiography.webs.com, to make a very appreciated secure PayPal donation. Or, if financial support is not an option, please consider sharing American Biography with folks you think might like it. You can do this by word of mouth, by liking or sharing our Facebook page, or, perhaps most importantly, taking a few minutes to give the show an iTunes review. Anyway, please join me next time as we talk about the Army's winter at Valley Forge. It should be a good time, so until then, thanks, and I'll talk to you soon.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.